Welcome to the Love Lab Podcast, a safe and fun place to get real and learn about sex. Whether you're a man or woman, single or couple, this is the show for you. I am your host, Kevin Anthony, and I am here to guide you to go from good to amazing in the bedroom and your relationships. All right, welcome back to the Love Lab Podcast. This is episode 287, and it is titled The Sex Education the Church Didn't Want You to Have. Now, before we get started here, I'm sure that many of my listeners are people that belong to a certain faith. And I want to assure you, I'm not here to absolutely destroy your religion and tell you how it's all evil and wrong. That's not the purpose of this show. However, having grown up with a religious uh, upbringing myself, I am well aware of some of the shortcomings of these institutions. And that's what we want to talk about today, specifically as it pertains to sex. We want to talk about, you know, what did the church teach us? How did that work out for us later in life? How did that service or not service? And what potentially could they have done better? And a whole lot more. Between my own personal experience and the experience of my guests who are on the show today, I think we're going to be able to dig into that pretty well. But before we do that, a short word from my sponsor, Power and Mastery 3.0 is here. The Men's Sexual Mastery Program you have heard about on this show for a long time is now even better. I have personally reviewed every module, lesson, video, audio, and PDF to see if there's anything new that needed to be added. As a result, I have added 10 new videos, one new audio, eight new PDFs, and dozens of links to handpick products to help support your journey to mastery. In addition, there is also a brand new user interface that makes it easier to navigate the course and find your course materials. So if you are ready to become the sexual master you have always wanted to be, then go now to powerandmastery.com. Okay, my guests today are Julia Postema and Jeremiah Gibson, and they are the co-hosts of the podcast Sex Evangelicals, the sex education the church didn't want you to have. They are both Boston-based licensed psychotherapists and certified sex therapists who work with clients in Massachusetts. They currently live in, oh boy, I'm going to mess this one up. You can correct me later. Utrecht, the Netherlands. They specialize in helping couples uh, navigate religious backgrounds, uh, discover sexuality that works for their partnership. They enjoy traveling to places that tend to fly under the radar, long distance hiking, cooking very spicy food, unexpected conversations, and introverted days filled with reading and drinking fancy tea. So welcome to the show. Thank you thank so you. much. Thank we you. are excited. And well done for saying Utrecht. Oh, thank you. <laughs> that was that was better than me. I was yeah. thinking, oh, he even had the accent. Utrecht. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> man, I saw that word in there and I'm like, oh man, that's going to oh, be a shit. tough one. <laughs> <laughs> no, you were amazing. All right. All right. So, you know, I'm not even going to do any more intro. I just want to jump right in because what I was going to say something about your backgrounds. And instead, let's just start there. Let's start with telling the audience first about your professional backgrounds. And then I want to get into your religious backgrounds after that. But one thing at a time, let's just let people know sort of who you are, what you do, and, and why you're here to talk about this today from a professional background. 
Yeah. So Julia and I are both uh, licensed psychotherapists. Uh, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. Julia is a licensed independent clinical social worker. Uh, we're also certified sex therapists um, through the American Association for Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. Long titles, all that to say we've done a lot of training. We've done a lot of, of our own work. We've done a lot of supervision about how to help people navigate relationships and build communication strategies that work best for them. Uh, and as we have developed uh, in our professional careers, we've both uh, kind of independently, and then more so when we met each other five years ago, have moved into wanting to specialize in relational health and, and then in sexual health. And Julia, as you and I met uh, five years ago, we started uh, Sex Evangelicals as a hobby podcast about three years ago, and it's slowly morphing into what we want to be our full-time business. Uh, we have learned just how uh, how intrinsically interconnected uh, negative messages about sexuality, bodies, desire, and uh, religious upbringings have been. And not just for folks who grew up in the church, but also for folks uh, who didn't grow up in the church, uh, who were impacted by um, who were impacted by abstinence-only sex education uh, movements in public schools in the, in the 90s and 2000s. So, um, so this is a pretty big population that we're talking to here. Uh, our oh, tag, sure. one of one of one of the things that we say on our podcast quite a bit is you don't have to have grown up in the church to have been fucked over by the church. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> Julia, anything you so, want to add to that about background before I move on to your religious backgrounds? That's a great start. I might add more later, but I love how you said that. Awesome. Okay. So we've established then your backgrounds as far as your expertise in this particular area professionally. But what we're going to talk about a lot in this episode as well is your own personal experiences with these things. And so maybe you can tell the audience a little bit about your religious background. And we don't necessarily need yet to dive into the specific things they taught you because we're going to get to that. But just a little bit about that. And if if you don't feel comfortable talking about the actual religion, you know, you don't have to say which one it was, but that's up to you. I mean, you certainly can share that if you want. Sure. I grew up in a independent, fundamentalist, Baptist community. That was my church of background. I also went to a tiny, tiny uh, private Christian school. It is. It was a part of the classical Christian education system. We can definitely chat more about the uniqueness of that later in the podcast. And then the third structure that really informed my experience was a Christian camp. So between those three structures, the camp the school and the church, I had very, very little exposure to anything outside of Christianity and not just mainstream Christianity, but a more fringy version of that. Mm -hmm. And you, Jeremiah? Yeah, I grew up in a denomination called the Churches of Christ. Uh, Churches of Christ are an interesting denomination in the evangelical church um, because on the one hand, they very much adhere to uh, some of the values around uh, or around gender, around sexuality uh, that other more mainstream evangelical churches do, uh, such as uh, like the Southern Baptist Church, uh, the Presbyterian churches, things like that. Uh, they have their own like really interesting, almost libertarian flair to it which which having left the church of christ like for um i've been out now for about six years uh is 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 really interesting to kind of look at we can talk about that a, a little bit later if, if if you want but um 
Yeah, I worked in churches. My first career is actually as a music minister. Uh, worked full-time at a church for about five years in West Texas, pretty big church. Uh, moved to Boston in 2010, ended up working at another church uh, for about seven years. Uh, and then while that happened, I also became a sex therapist. And I was in a situation where I had to pick one or the other uh, because the church ended up firing me for uh, what I uh, said about some of my views about sexuality. So I got I got kicked out of the church. Uh, Julia left more willingly, I think, than I did. Well, that is actually fascinating. And I'm so glad I asked that question. See, you know, sometimes, you know, when I'm writing these questions, like I look at it, I'm like, okay, I want to know this, but I don't want to spend a ton of time, you know, with the whole who are you kind of thing. Like I really want to give the audience, you know, value in, in the content. But I'm so glad I asked that question because it would not be uh, strange to assume that you had more of the religious background that most of us had, which is, you know, when we were little, we grew up in the church. We had experiences that sent us on a certain path. Many of us walked away from the church very young, right? And then, so what we're talking about here is all based on our experience maybe as children. But what I'm hearing from both of you is that you spent a significantly longer amount of time in these systems, especially Jeremiah being... Especially me, yeah. Yeah, being so... Uh, uh, integrated in and working for churches and really being part of that. And so what I think is great about that is when people hear this show, when they listen to this, they're not they're not going to say, oh, that was just, you know, their childhood experience and then, you know, that's it. Mm. Like you have a, you know, I don't want to make any assumptions about how old you are. <laughs> There's a lot of gray in this beard here too, so I'm probably at least as old as you, maybe older. <laughs> But the point is, is that um, you've had a lifetime to experience this in addition to the work that you do professionally. And so I really wanted people to understand that because when we start getting deep into the material here, this isn't coming from a little bit of experience. It's coming from a lot of experience. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. No, thanks for naming that. Okay. So let's jump in now then and talk about and you both get an opportunity to answer this. This can go in a lot of directions and I don't know where it's going to go. But I just want to start with what are some of the biggest things when it pertains to sex that the church taught you that you believe they got wrong? Yes. I agree with you. We could probably both answer this in a lot of different directions. Our first series on our podcast is called The Seven Deadly Sexual Sins According to the Church. And we break down uh, seven of the primary sins that uh, we and many folks were taught would be deeply, deeply damaging. Uh, the two that stand out to me as foremost and the two that impacted my life the most significantly were one, don't have sex before you get married and don't be gay. Now, even the labeling of those two quote unquote sins is problematic when we as all sexual health professionals could break down what does sex mean and uh, use some queer theory here. All that to say, as a small child, that created a massive culture of both shame and anxiety. So what I tell folks is that don't have sex before you get married is certainly something that people learn in abstinence-only education. But if you grow up in more of a community of faith that teaches these messages, it goes far deeper than don't have sex before you get married. For me, as a small child, that meant being 8, 9, 10 years old, prepubescent, and 
and having conversations with my friends about whether or not spaghetti straps were sinful because God forbid that I as a child be a stumbling block for the uncontrollable urges of adult men. So those sins run really, really deep. Oh man, the things you just said there. Yeah, you're right. They run really, really deep. That last little bit I'm not even sure I want to touch it just yet. <laughs> that's okay. Because <laughs> that is a really deep piece that you just shared. And that's actually going to be related to, after we finish this question, my, my next question is going to be related to that last thing that you just talked about. But what I really wanted to get back to is one of the things that I and my wife, when she was alive, uh, we really worked a lot with clients was the sexual shame piece. And, yes. what, and what you just mentioned is this is one of the main roots for where that sexual shame comes from. Absolutely. Yes. And it is so pervasive. That's right. Yeah. And I don't want to get too far off the topic, but could you maybe just share why that shame is such a problem? Yeah. I remember being probably around the same age that I just described around nine. And I remember, and I don't remember the reason for this, but I remember being in the bathroom and touching my vulva, touching my vagina. I actually wasn't trying to masturbate. I just wanted to know what existed in my own body. And then I had what I now know to be a, a panic attack. And I confessed this sin to my mother that, oh my goodness, I... I touched my body. And so that indicates the level of the shame and anxiety that the messaging from Christian cultures creates because it teaches you that your body is bad, that you in and of yourself are a temptation to yourself and to other people, and that any thought or desire around sexuality before you get married is inherently wrong. And of course, as all three of us know, when those messages are embedded for years, for decades, when you get married or you choose to enter into sexual spaces, you can't quite overcome that. Yeah, that, that's a huge piece. And that's, that's something, uh, obviously, we see in the work that we do, which is that these are things that got ingrained in us when we were very, very young, but yet they affect us all the way through our adult lives. And they actually damage the way that we are able to show up in our relationships, not only our relationship to ourselves, but our relationship to our partners and damages both of those. All right, before we go too much further down that's that right. road... Jeremiah, I'm curious from your perspective, some of the big things that religion taught you that you felt uh, they got wrong. Same as, as what Julia mentioned. I think, so, so two things stand out. One, wanting to name real quick the other sexual sins. Uh, don't have wants, and that's particularly for women. Uh, don't watch porn, that was directed particularly towards men. Uh, don't have sex outside of marriage, so don't commit infidelity. And just in general, don't talk about sex. Uh, so those are the other uh, sexual sins that we talk about on the podcast. Julia, I may be missing out on one of them. Uh, I wrote them down trying to, in, in my notes, trying to remember yeah, all seven that, of them. But well, That's great. You know, hey, if anybody's been listening to this show for any length of time, I must be the biggest sinner because I, all of my work is around trying to reverse all of those things you just sure, said. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> right. Well, and so the second thing that I would uh, mention is that a lot of this messaging is directed towards women. Uh, women are 
much more likely, though not exclusively, much more likely to be victims of uh, some of the language and some of the dictates of, of purity culture than, than men are. Uh, so my version of this was I was uh, in a 15-year-long relationship uh, before I met Julia, and uh, that started uh, sophomore year of college, and uh, we had initial sexual experiences, uh, age 19, age 20, and uh, they were followed by panic attacks. And in our case, you know, your question about shame, something else that happens around shame is shame prevents people from having uh, honest conversations, honest conversations about what's going on, and then honest conversations about the systems that negatively impacted you and your own like sense of accountability in terms of like how you have uh, been impacted by them, how you've chosen to act in, in harmful ways that kind of align with uh, the larger dictates of, of the uh, Christian messages as well. Uh, so that was something in my 15 uh, year long marriage we were never able to recover from. Um, yeah, and, that and, is, it, and it was rooted around silence. It was rooted around like the inability to talk about hard things. Yeah, that, and that is absolutely one of the big problems that shows up in relationships down the line when you've had that kind of programming, for sure. Um, you know, my next question, you, you've kind of already gone there, so let's just go there now. My follow-up question was, um, you know, were there differences in the messaging that you got? Because, you know, we, you have obviously a man and a woman here, and you both grew up in slightly different backgrounds, but religious backgrounds. Did you get different messaging based on your gender? From what I've heard already, I know that's the Absolutely. case, but could you talk a little <laughs> bit more about what the differences were? Yeah. Oh, that's that's a great question. That's a hard question because it runs so deep and for me was a part of my entire landscape as a child, adolescent, and even young adult, what I learned is that women are primarily the object of the uncontrollable urges of men. That was the language that I learned growing up. So I hate the word urges for that reason. <laughs> And uh, the language that I also learned is that women, when they don't appropriately uh, dress modestly, that they are a stumbling block. So even that language is quite dehumanizing because it has no uh, sense of humanity, right? You are a block and you are something that a man would trip over and that you as a girl, have, and I say girl because that's when we learned, you as a girl have to protect yourself from rape, from sexual harm, from your own desires by being modest, by being submissive. That was another big word in my church community. And then, of course, when a woman gets married, they are expected to be this sexual goddess to fill the socially conditioned fantasies of men. And that does not tend to, to work well for women. What I also talk about on our podcast quite a bit is even though I'm not a man, I work quite a bit with men and with couples and uh, the mind fuck that men receive in these kinds of communities is that on one hand, you have these, again, strong sexual desires that are nearly uncontrollable and that is simultaneously how God made you. So you have to embrace that. And that is also terrible. That is also the devil in you 
demonic possession was a big part of my community as well. So men simultaneously had to fight and embrace what they learned that God made them as. And you you can't do both of those things at the same time. So men and women are trapped in these double binds. And when they don't have the skills to talk through it, then it gets even messier when you enter into romantic or sexual relationships. Oh boy, let's unpack a little bit of what you just said right there. Let's go back to sort of the beginning of it, which is the, you know, you had to do certain things as a woman because of the way men would react. That's shifting the blame from the man's behavior over to the women's behavior. Whoa, that's a big mind fuck right there, right? Saying that you're somehow responsible for him not being able to control his urges. Um, another, Another amazing thing that you said too was they spend all this time telling you not to be sexual, And then all of a sudden, one day you get married and you're just supposed to flip the switch and instantly know how to be sexual and show up for your partner with no experience whatsoever in that. That's right. (laughs) Right. Right. Huge, huge, huge. And then, of course, you brought in the part, and, you know, Jeremiah, if you want to speak to this uh, as well, you brought in the part about the men and how it was seen more as like a demonic possession or they, they have no control over their urges. All of this stuff... And unfortunately, this is a big part of what churches do. But all of this stuff disempowers you as an individual. You're somehow right. not yes. responsible or not uh, able to control these things. That's, that is mm-hmm. quite the mindfuck, as you said. Yeah. Well, And just to add to that, not only are men kind of told that they are, that they are, for lack of a better term, sexual monsters... Uh, churches also expect men to be in positions of leadership, regardless of whether they want it to or not. So, for instance, uh, and I've shared this on our podcast before, when I was seven, I was part of a Bible study. And in that Bible study were five or six families. And um, all of the families were um, opposite sex, obviously, because rule number two, uh, according to the church, don't be gay. Uh, and all of the kids were girls. So at any given point, I was, I was the only boy that was there. So because uh, many times the, uh, the men, the fathers uh, couldn't make it or, quote, couldn't make it uh, to, to Bible study. Um, but there would be these Bible studies where we would start with, uh, we would start with singing songs. We'd start with leading prayers and the women turned to me and said, well, Jeremiah, you're the boy. Uh, you, you're, they, they didn't say this because the word penis was off limits, but, but they're insinuating you're the one with a penis. You're the one that leads the songs. And so little seven-year-old Jeremiah would be like, okay, in my like high, pitchy, twangy voice. Um, and, and I would sing songs uh, and, and uh, would lead a prayer. And read scripture if we decided to do that. Like, like I learned early at seven, whether or not I wanted it or not, that uh, people looked to me to uh, fill in leadership vacuums. Uh, and it's a good thing that I am a decent human being uh, because there are plenty of situations where, um, where young boys, young men have been put into positions of leadership uh, by uh, family systems, by religious systems, and it hasn't turned out well. Uh, there's been a ton, a ton, a ton of harm um, as a, as a result of that, uh, th- as a result of the the unchecked power 
that uh, men are given and ultimately that men take uh, in, in these, in these types of systems. So yeah, that, that would be, that, oh, go ahead. That, that's just an interesting, that's not something that I would have thought of or would have come up in this conversation, but it, it's an interesting point that, you know, basically because in that system, men were the leaders, you were thrust into that role, whether or not you were good at it. Fortunately, you know, like, as you said, you were a decent human being. Uh, that is another very interesting sort of aspect of this whole discussion. And I want to ask you this. It's actually not even a question on here, but it's just something that uh, I thought of while I was listening to you. Uh, I did a show, my wife and I did a show quite a while back. It was called Sex and Spirituality, Are They Mutually Exclusive? And the idea behind that show was, it was my impression before I started researching this, that the overwhelming majority of teachings that came from the church around sexuality were not actually in the Bible or the scripture. And so my, my thought process on that was, well, if they, did, if they weren't there in the original book, then they had to have been created by humans. Of course, the book was written by humans. Yeah, that's a whole other thing. But you, you see where I'm going with this, which is that these systems tend to create their own rules around sexuality that don't necessarily right. come from the spirituality itself. And I'm just wondering if you can speak to that. Sure. So yeah. one of the major sources, uh, religiously speaking, that gets referred to is the work of Paul in the epistles. Uh, Paul is writing in a Roman context. Uh, Roman history, uh, I'm sorry, Roman culture, excuse me, uh, is uh, very, um, very aggressive. Actually, not all that different from American culture. The more that we learn about Roman culture and the more that American culture is evolving in the last 30 to 40 years. But um one of the big ideas in Roman culture is this idea of dualism. Uh, dualism is this idea that uh, the spirit, what, what lives inside of us is good and the body is bad and things within the body are to be rejected. Uh, that's actually not teachings from, from Jesus. Jesus doesn't actually say that. Um, but Paul is talking about that and, and probably uh, adheres to that to some extent, depending on who he's talking to uh, through, throughout the New Testament. Um, so, so that would be one of the the first ideas that that comes out to me is is, um, you know, good biblical study also recognizes that uh, these biblical writings are happening in a larger cultural context, um, in a context that is is very different from the context that we're living in, uh, in in twenty first century America. So, I'd start there. That's fantastic. A phrase that's fairly popular currently is the idea of spiritual, not religious. And although that's cliche, I think that points to the desire of many people to have some sort of connection outside of themselves to whatever language they would use, God, universe, etc. And so when I work with clients who have a religious background and are trying to unlearn some of the harmful messages, something that I always make clear is my value, my stake in this is your flourishing as a relational and sexual person. So if you are able to reconcile that with a spiritual or religious tradition, I will be your number one fan because that can be a protective factor. Or if you have to make the hard choice to leave, which is also something that many people do, that is incredibly difficult. And I will also be there to support you in navigating the aftermath of that. Some people are able to find a middle ground, depending on your background, that can be really difficult. Uh, but like you said at the beginning of the episode, uh, our work is certainly not 
anti-religious, our work is pro-sexual health, and what people do with their religion can look different depending on the relationship in the community. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. I'm, I'm 100% in agreement with that message. If, if we tried to go out there and tell people that they need to basically throw out their entire worldview, not even worldview, universal view, creation view, you know, uh, in order to have good sex, they're just not going to hear that message. And right. that, that was the goal of the episode that I did. I wanted to show people that those things were not mutually exclusive, that you could still, if you chose, you know, believe in your faith and yet still be a healthy, functioning, sexual being and have great sex and great relationships. And so I'm, I'm happy to hear that you share that. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show from what I had seen and from when we had talked. I felt that we were pretty aligned on that. And I wanted people to hear that message from somebody with more expertise than myself. Because, <laughs> you know, I left the church very, very young. Like, I, met, I spent, yeah. <laughs> I went to Catholic school and through eighth grade. And for about half of that, I begged my parents to please take me oh. out of that school every year. Please take me out of this school. Please take me out of this oh. school. <laughs> Finally, around high school time, uh, they acquiesced only because my older brother, who was then in uh, Catholic high school, finally convinced them to get him out of the Catholic high school. So when it came time for me to go to high school, all right, fine. They really didn't want to do it, but I think they were just tired of us complaining about it. Um, but that was pretty much the last, you know, um, contact I had really with the church. But yeah. I am uh, a scholar, so to speak. I have read the Bible in my adult life, not because I necessarily uh, was worshiping it, but because I wanted to understand it and know what it said and, and how so much of the world is based on that book, how it runs and the people who believe it. I wanted to understand it. I've read the Satanic Bible too, because I wanted to understand that. I'm like, I want to know what the other side's thinking. How, what's, what, how does their mind work, right? So, but... I didn't spend as much time in the church. I didn't work for a church. Like I couldn't quote that scripture that you just quoted, Jeremiah. So that's why it's so helpful to have you here to share these ideas because it comes from a very knowledgeable place. So I appreciate that. Okay, uh, we're about halfway through the show. I wanna just pause for a break and then I wanna come back and talk about how these teachings affected your own personal relationships throughout your life. Okay. Hey guys, you know what makes a man great. You know the kind of masculine man that women are irresistibly attracted to and want. Is it money, job title, his physical body? Is it because he's great and better, has a big penis? But what if you don't have those or only some of them? What if you've had a string of failed relationships, are embarrassed by your bedroom skills, doubt whether you can rise to the occasion, worry about lasting long enough, or are always stuck in the friend zone? I can help you if you're ready to make big changes and finally become the man you have always wanted to be, then this is the program for you. To find out more, please go to kevinandceline.com forward slash go forward slash warrior. The link is in the description. That is kevinenseline.com forward slash go forward slash warrior. Okay, so we talked about uh, your professional backgrounds. We talked about your religious backgrounds. We talked about some of the teachings that you uh, feel the church got wrong. We talked about differences in how women were taught sexuality in these religious uh, institutions versus men. I'm curious now, how did that affect the way you were able to have both a sexual relationship with yourself, primarily uh, when you were younger, and then as you got older, how that affected your relationships? Yeah, 
I like that you included relationship with yourself and partners. So I did not uh, masturbate growing up because that was evil or so I learned. And I also got married very young at 22. Now, many people in my church community got married earlier than that, 17 or not 17, 18, 19, 20, that kind of thing. But 22, I still think is very young. And I remember being engaged and I was pumped to get married primarily because I wanted to have shame-free sexual experiences. And what I learned is that sex would magically be great after you got married if you followed all the rules. Now, of course, sex was vaginally penetrative intercourse, and I didn't think during my engagement, despite all the premarital counseling at our church, about, huh, I have no idea what feels good to me sexually because I have never explored that but I am sure that I am going to get the honeymoon sex that my church <laughs> promised me. How'd that and work out for you? I did not. I, uh, I, I cried every single day on my honeymoon because it was sex, but it was more than sex. I learned that my worth as a woman was in becoming a wife and most importantly in being a wife, being sexually desirable to my husband And we struggled quite a bit. Uh, We eventually did find a good sex therapist years after getting married. Uh, The relationship did not survive. And I don't think that means that either one of us failed. But what makes me incredibly sad when I think about that relationship is, oh, I wonder what might have been different if we had sexual and relational tools to set us up for success. We didn't. And the relationship ended. And not only did the relationship end, but the communities that didn't teach me about sexuality, the communities that didn't teach me about relationships uh, actually shamed me. And that was a that was a triple blow, uh, I suppose, when I think about the sexual losses, the relational losses with my ex-husband, and then also the judgment from... Uh, many church communities. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. The, the you said a lot of things in there, but what what was really sort of impacting me was like sort of the triple blow, right? Like all of those things, just one on top of another, and how. I mean, I don't really know because I didn't ask you, and you haven't shared it yet. Really, how you know, like how you dealt with that later on, but but, and we don't necessarily even have to go there. But it seems to me like that much stuff piled on top probably took a long time to unwind. Absolutely. Yes. A long time. Yeah. I, I'm happy to share more about that later, but I want to make sure you've got the chance to talk about uh, your own experiences with sexuality and relationships with yourself and others. Yeah, Kevin, in your question that, that you asked, I'm thinking about a couple of different kind of branches here. One branch is, Julia, very much what you experienced. You received very overt messages that uh, that were discriminatory, that were shame-based, uh, that were negative about your sexuality. In my, and then there's another branch where what happens when you don't talk about sexuality at all? And that was more of my experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so my parents 
on the one on, in good news, they didn't say anything negative about sexuality, which is great. In not so good news, they also didn't say anything about sexuality. And 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 that was also largely true with with my church community. There there were definitely messages around gender and 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 performativity of gender, which we can talk about a little bit later. But there weren't particularly, at least that I remember, any overt messages about about sexuality. It was just kind of taken for granted that oh, like we're gonna um, all participate in abstinence only education, but. Nobody in my church participated in uh, like the more overt, like true love weights um, or the other kind of uh, examples of, of, of purity culture. So how does that then impact me? Your question about um, relationship with self. I began masturbating when I was 13 and my masturbatory experiences almost exclusively happened in bed with my pillow over my head, wrapped up blankets around me. Uh, and then I would uh, masturbate and try to be as quiet as I could. And so, uh, so, so even the act of that uh, masturbation in secret, uh, and that's something that continued. That, that's something that continued throughout college in in, in various senses. Um, so that was my relationship with myself. I could have a relationship with myself, but I did whatever I could to to keep it secret, to keep it quiet. I didn't want anyone to walk in on me. Uh, and and to say anything uh, negative, and I think that it also impacted like early dating experiences as well. Um, I had uh, plenty of opportunities, I think, to date other people that were interested in me, and and, and I was scared shitless, quite frankly, uh, just that I didn't have uh, the either the relationship skills or the or the, I suppose, for lack of a better term, kind of the um, uh, the ethereal blessing <laughs> from 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 God uh, to to move into that because church is very much kind of a part of of my life. Uh, in as as a teenager, spent a lot of time doing uh, church related things. So, um, so definitely impacted my adolescence in those two ways. And then once I got to be married, like Julia, similar to what you were saying. I, ha- I had hoped that uh, having, I, I would hope, I had hoped that getting married would be an end to the panic attacks that happened during our dating relationship. And for a few years, they actually ended. Uh, but instead, uh, they, the first year and a half was actually pretty good. Uh, and then about a year, 18 months in, there was a lot of criticism. And I actually ended up receiving a lot of cri- criticism from my ex. Um, about being too sexual, about, quote, always wanting sex with the assumption underneath that that my sexuality was dangerous. Uh, and then uh, there there was um, that set up a fairly long experience where we had a sexual dynamic in which we had sex. We both kind of we, we, we kind of tacitly agreed to it, but we didn't talk about it. Um, and so when I, uh, when I started studying as a sex therapist, one of the first things that I learned about was consent and, uh, learned that consent is a relational process between two people and, uh, being able to talk about sex. And my initial thought after that class was, oh, fuck, I have done this wrong. I have completely harmed my ex. Uh, I, I am a sexual monster. And, and, and so I tried to talk with my ex about that. I like to go to therapy. Can we talk? She's like, but I need to go to therapy. It's fine. Don't worry about it. 
which again speaks to a different kind of of shame and unwillingness to have hard conversations. Uh, and then that uh, kind of uh, the the relationship kind of went off a cliff for the two years that that followed that. But um, yeah, a, a lot of a lot of pain in my own um, in, in the fifteen year. Uh, marriage relationship. Yeah. And that's, that's really why I want to have this conversation today, because at the end of the day, whether we're talking about, you know, what the church did or didn't do at the end of the day, it causes real harm to people and their relationships. And both of you experienced a lot of pain that you could have avoided had you had better education in this area. And Jeremiah, my experience was very similar to yours in a sense that in the Catholic Church, it was don't talk about it. It was never brought up. It was never talked about in any way whatsoever. So as a young person, you are left to try to figure it out on your own. And yeah, Mm -hmm. that generally turns into a disaster. So many things that could have been avoided, so much hurt on both sides if we had just been given proper information and we could have made better decisions. And not just proper information, but also proper skills uh, to learn, too. Because sex sex education is not just learning a bunch of facts about anatomy, although it's definitely helpful. It's not about uh, learning different types of sexual activities or different types of uh, orientations or arrangement structures, although that's helpful. Like sex education is about is about communication. It's about how you communicate uh, what it is that you want, which means giving yourself permission to sit with yourself and ask yourself the question, "What is it that you want?" And uh, the 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 absence of those, type, among other things, the absence of those communication skills also makes it really really hard for people to have effective uh, sex uh, sexual experiences. And that's Julia, what you and I are doing, and why we're so invested in the work of couples therapy is that couples therapy is ultimately about practicing those communication skills, communication skills that you didn't learn uh, in your your systems of origin, uh, families, religious, school, etc. Yeah, you know, the next question on my list, which we can now just skip because you already talked about it, was why is it so important to talk about it? <laughs> yeah. You know, one of, yeah. The, one of the things that so many people, whether they be people who listen to the podcast, watch my YouTube channel, or work with us, one of the things that they always uh, used to say to both my wife and I and now just me is that they would always say that because we would come out and talk so openly about every part of our sex lives and sex in general, that they finally had permission to start to talk about it themselves. Sure. Absolutely. Ah, Which is one of the reasons that we want to talk about sex on our podcast as well. Uh, Some of the, we we have an episode coming up. uh, It's end of January when we're recording this. We we, uh, have an episode coming up this week about uh, how to call audibles. Uh, and our own experiences of that, how, how, to, how to make transitions, how to do that on the fly, and how to do that in a relational way. Uh, we want to talk about uh, not just uh, relational health from an academic standpoint, but also from our own personal relationship. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and that very easily ties it. Relational health is sexual health. Oh, absolutely. Uh, that can very quickly tie into to, uh, the sexual relationship. So, mm-hmm. so all right. We're going to... We're going to shift into, since we're getting close to the end of the show, we're going to shift into the solutions portion of the show here. And the first question is is going to be a tough one. I wouldn't want to be on your end, but (laughs) I don't expect any of these institutions to change one bit. However, based on your experience, 
what could these institutions potentially do that could maybe at least limit some of the damage that these teachings create? A dream that I have would be to host conference is the best word I can think of, although I don't think it's the best word, conferences with churches in which uh, folks are able to share their experiences of growing up with restrictive messages around gender, sexuality, and relationships, a, a bit like does, a bit like the Truth and Reconciliation Commission um, that we know in, in South Africa, in which people are able to say, this is what happened, here's how it harmed me, and to have folks who perpetuated that to not respond um, defensively and not even to say what their intentions were because I believe that the adults who taught me these messages were probably trying to help me. It harmed me, but I give them the benefit of the doubt. But if folks in those systems really want to help the healing process, then first and foremost, they need to hear what happened and how it was harmful. And then if they're really willing to put their uh, money where their mouth is to be able to pay for the therapy, uh, the sexual health therapy of some of the folks who who need it. I have spent thousands of dollars in my own sex therapy, well worth it. I also have the privilege of being able to afford it. Not everybody does have the privilege to be able to afford it. So those are two very practical things that I would suggest host some sort of event in which people can share about their experiences without a retort and offer to sponsor the therapy of folks who are trying to heal. And Julia and I hope this is okay to say would like to offer to facilitate that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jeremiah, anything you want to add to that that you think churches could do better? Yeah, I'm thinking about Julia and I talk a lot about the distinction between values and behaviors. And a lot of the values that I have, so values around compassion, around hospitality, around curiosity, maybe a little less of curiosity, uh, around or around kindness, uh, around sacrifice, like these are all values that I learned in the church. And one of the things that I would invite the church to do is to talk about sexuality more from the perspective of values. Uh, more from the perspective of what does it mean to have a compassionate interaction uh, between two people? Because what the church does, the church doesn't start uh, with values. They start with behaviors. This is the whole idea of the seven deadly sexual sins, according to the church, is that they are sins. They're not values. They're behaviors uh, that, that that happen. And when you start with behaviors, it's a lot harder to work backwards and to talk about uh, the, the values and the traits that might be informing those behaviors, the intentions, the desires, the hopes, the goals that might be informing those types of behaviors. Then it is, if you kind of zoom out, talk about the values that you want to have, talk about the values that are important to your partner, what alignment might be there for two people. And then two people or more people can work together to figure out, okay, what types of behaviors might work given the shared values that we have. Wow, you know, when I when I threw that question at you, I was feeling a little bad because I was like, man, if they didn't already think about this, like what a huge question to ask, right? But you both knocked it right out of the park. Like both of those are fantastic ideas. So um, I would love if somebody in these organizations could hear this. I doubt that they will because they probably are not listening to my show. 
but maybe, probably not. <laughs> probably not listening to our show either. Yeah. <laughs> maybe somehow somebody will send it to them and they'll start to get that message. Aside from that, though, because we don't have any control over those institutions and what they may or may not do, the people listening to this, I'm wondering if you could each give them some advice. If they've had this kind of a background, if they've experienced these types of problems in their relationships, in their own life, what can they specifically do that could help with this? Yeah. If a person is in some sort of partnership, I would say that the first step is being able to start conversations, which is basic, but basic doesn't mean easy. You had mentioned that you and your wife would share about your own sexual experiences. If you can talk about sex well, you can probably talk about anything well. So Jeremiah and I will uh, talk with couples about setting up some sort of structured conversation in which they can dip their toe into the waters of sexuality. And the first conversation about sexuality would be a small conversation, not because they are not capable of having a bigger conversation, but because these messages uh, that restrict and disempower us run really, really deep. So find your partner or partners, set a timer, find a location, a time that works for you, name one very specific thing that you'll discuss. And that might be one sexual experience that you've shared that you liked together. And it doesn't have to be intercourse. It could be a kiss, uh, a massage, something else, anything that you might have enjoyed with your partner. And then be sure to plan some sort of aftercare. Even those dip your toe into the water conversations can be really difficult. When I was married to my ex-husband, that would have been a really hard conversation for me to have at the beginning of sex therapy. Even though right now, That would be the easiest thing in the world. That wasn't. That was super, super difficult. So then plan something that you can do to reconnect afterwards, if that's a game or a walk or reading in bed together or whatever else it is after you have that vulnerability to come back together. The other thing that I would add just to build on that is making sure that the content is more about the concept of pleasure. Mm-hmm. And what feels good uh, to a person? It could be, and, and sex could absolutely be a part of that. What feels good to the body could absolutely be a part of that. Um, pleasure can also happen in, in 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 a lot of different ways. But but thinking about what feels good for for a person and uh, centering the conversations about that, and then how can a couple work together to create experiences and then ultimately to create sustainable practices that help uh, f- that help the couple that help the relationship engage with that pleasure um, and then uh, having those conversations also opens the door to to desire uh, to dreams as we talked about one of the uh, seven deadly sexual sins is don't have wants. Uh, part of our work that we often find in sex therapy is helping people re-engage with desire, which is re-engaging with their imaginations, re-engaging with their wants, giving themselves permission to have both of those things. Yeah, that's that's wonderful advice. And, you know, I would also suggest if you've had this sort of an upbringing, if you know that you've got trauma around this, you don't have to try to deal with this on your own. Get the help that you need, which of course leads me to 
if could you please share with the audience where they can find more about your work and if they are needing support around this, how they can get it. Absolutely. Uh, so we are online at www.sexvangelicals.com. Uh, we are taking on uh, a, a new clients as sex coaches. Um, so uh, for folks that are uh, that live in Massachusetts, we're happy to uh, work with with couples. Feel free to reach out to us at sexvangelicals at gmail.com. Um, the coach element uh, means that we work with with folks uh, internationally uh, and nationally as well. So um, feel free to reach out to us on the website, on email. We also have a Substack, uh, which we which is called Relationship One Hundred and One. Uh, so we send out three emails each week. Uh, two of those are for, are for our uh, paid subscribers. Uh, if folks want access to all of that, they can uh, sign up at sexvangelicals.substack.com. Awesome. So Can I plug one other thing? Oh, yeah, of course one more thing, Julia. Um, if that feels like too scary and you're in the dip the toe situation, um, we are starting a monthly book club. Um with a whole host of books around topics of sexuality, gender, relationships, fiction, nonfiction, memoir, journalism. And so if folks want to meet us or meet other people with similar experiences and the idea of a coaching call or a therapy call uh, is out too outside of the comfort zone, 1000% get that. Um, you can also ask us about the book club. That might be an easier an easier toe in. And there's more info on that online, sexvangelicals.com. Yes, and the link to your website will be in the uh, show notes. Amazing, um, thank you. One thing I do just want to clarify for people listening, because uh, for us, we understand and it totally makes sense, but other people may not. Because you're licensed therapists, you're licensed yes. in the state of Massachusetts. So if somebody wants to work with you in the context of a therapy session, they have to yes. actually live in Massachusetts. That's Where, right. Whereas coaching, you can coach anyone anywhere around the world, right? That's right. Yes. Just, yes. I just want people yeah. to understand why there's thank a, a yeah. difference there. Okay, and, and there's a whole other conversation that that is <laughs> that we could go into in in a different oh, podcast yeah. about that. <laughs> I'm well aware of that. Uh, you know, I I started doing this too late in life to have the desire to go back to school and get licensed. But when I started doing it, I realized that that isn't actually the path I wanted to go anyway because that limits the ability to do this work. Sure, and so I in all kinds of ways, yeah, yeah, certainly. All right, so. One last thing before we finish up here, we are now going to practice a little bit of what we've been preaching throughout this show, because I have a question that I ask everybody that I interview at the end of this show, and you each get an opportunity to answer, and it is, what is your best sexual talent? Ooh. I'm an amazing kisser. Ah. Kisser of all uh, body parts. <laughs> Very good. Do I, do I need to cue I, the Jeopardy music here? <laughs> well, I knew that uh, because I've been listening to your podcast, I knew that you were going to ask that. I've been going back and forth around it. Uh, <laughs> There's no wrong answer. You, you, do, you do have uh, four or five really good options here. I know. Thank you. I like to think that I have infinite sexual Humility skills. is one of them. <laughs> uh, I am a great seducer, you sure I would are. say. I would agree with that. Awesome. Well, those are both great skills to have. And see, we just exercised for everybody the ability to talk about something of a sexual nature openly. Indeed. Yeah, I love that. I like that. That's great. 
All right. Well, this was a wonderful conversation. You guys were great. I really appreciated the information and the personal experience that you shared. So thank you for coming on the show. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks so much, Kevin. Really enjoyed our time with you. Thanks for all the work that you do too. You're welcome. All right, everybody. That's all I have for this episode and I will see you next week. I hope you like this episode of the Love Lab podcast. If you enjoy this show, subscribe, leave us a review, and share it with your friends. And for more free exclusive content, join me in the Passion Vault at kevinandceline.com forward slash vault. That's kevinandceline.com forward slash vault. Thanks for listening. And remember, as Celine used to say, you're amazing.